We come this morning to one of the seminal passages in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, we will be considering verses 1 through 19. These are the words of God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this passage is full of glory and beauty and power and awe and truth, and we pray that you would open it all to us now by the Holy Spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Within the life of Abraham, there are punctuated moments when God calls Abraham to take a giant step forward, either in his understanding of the gospel 
or in his trust and obedience to the God of the gospel. Here, God calls Abraham to do both. And God does so by testing Abraham. Verse 1. Now, the Hebrew word for test means just that, to test something in order to reveal what it's truly made of. With gold, you test it by fire to reveal if it's genuine gold as opposed to fool's gold. And if it is genuine gold, you test it by fire to reveal any impurities so that they float to the top and can be skimmed off so you are left with pure gold. This is exactly the picture that the Apostle Peter uses to illustrate what God does with every one of us as his children and exactly what we see him doing with Abraham in Genesis 22. First Peter 1 verse 6, you greatly rejoice. Peter is talking here to believers and he's saying you greatly rejoice in the salvation that is in Christ. And yet in the midst of this rejoicing, he says, now for a little while you have been grieved. So you have both rejoicing and you have grief. And what does the grief do to various trials, various testings? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, though tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So a trial or a test is a hardship. It is a difficulty that puts stress on our faith. And that stress over time can begin to make us weary and discouraged in the faith. It can make us begin to waver and wonder regarding our assurance as to God's love, as to God's wisdom, as to God's power. We can begin to wonder. We may not articulate this exactly, but it can be the way we feel. We begin to feel and wonder, is God really in control? Does God really know what he's doing? Does he really understand what is for my blessing? Does God really love me? It's easy for us to convince ourselves in some states of mind that God may love other people, but how could he love me? The bottom line is we end up wondering, can I really trust God? Can I really rely on his word with regard to my whole self, with regard to my future, with regard to all that I care about? Now, that kind of stress, that kind of pressure put on faith, if you crank it all the way up, if you turn it all the way up, that is what Abraham is facing when God tells him to take Isaac, his son, who by this time is likely in his teen years. We can see from Isaac's interactions with his father Abraham here that he's not a little child anymore. He's asking questions. We have the fire. We have the wood. Where is the lamb? And so he is old enough to interact with his father at that level, has two other young lads with him. They're probably going to be around his age. 
And this, it refers to Isaac as being Abraham's only son, or you could say only begotten son. Now, we know that Abraham had another son, Ishmael. Ishmael was his firstborn. The difference is this. Isaac was Abraham's only son of promise, promised decades ahead of time that Abraham and Sarah had to wait for, and Sarah was barren her whole life, and then she was too old to boot. So he was, uh, he was Abraham's only miraculously born son of promise. In other words, he was Abraham's only son who was a living picture of Jesus Christ who was to come. And so... God here tells Abraham to take his son to a mountain that God will show him and there to offer him as a burnt offering, literally in the Hebrew, an ascension offering. And in that ascension offering, one of the requirements was the entire animal had to go up in the flame. So Isaac is going to have to go up his whole self in the flame in this case. And this mountain that God is calling Abraham to go to is three days' journey. So this is the sort of thing that if it has to be done, it's the sort of thing you don't want to think about it. But God gives Abraham three whole days to do nothing but think about it. To do nothing but see his son Isaac with these other two lads, watch them have fun and horse around together the way lads do, and think about what's going to happen when they get there. So Abraham's faith is being tested to the max. He's got to basically, in poker terms, look at his hold card. He has to ask himself, who has God revealed himself to be? What has God promised me? Can God be trusted to keep his promises no matter what? Can Abraham cast his whole self and all of his hopes for the future, all of which God has bound up with Isaac, can he cast all of that completely upon the God who first called him out of his homeland and now is calling him to sacrifice his miraculously born son of promise. Now that that is a lot of intensity, that is a lot of drama that's supplied simply by the circumstances themselves. But for us to fully appreciate what is really happening here and to get the full force of it, we have to remember exactly who is speaking to Abraham. Because it's not just God in a generic sense. It is God the Son. It is Christ pre-incarnate. Christ before he was incarnated as a man in the person of Jesus. Now we have emphasized this point a number of times along the way in Genesis. But we have to keep reminding ourselves of this fact because it's so easy to forget And then we lose some of the real force of these events. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
Now, the religious leaders understood what Jesus was saying. He understood, they understood that he was saying that he was the one who appeared to Abraham so many years before. Now, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Christ. And so the leaders of the Jews respond, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus does not qualify what he said. He doubles and triples down. Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am, of course, is the covenant name of God in the Hebrew. It's what the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, it's what it means. I am. I am the eternal one. I am the all-powerful one. I am the all-wise one. I am the all-loving one. I am the never-changing, never-failing, promise-making, promise-keeping God. I am the God who saves. And this is the same name by which God will reveal himself later on in the book of Exodus to Moses in the famous burning bush scene. There... uh, God calls to to Moses from the bush. And we see the same elements that we see here in Genesis 22. First, the one calling to Moses from the bush is identified as the angel of the Lord. Now, angel, you have to remember, is a function term. It's not a being term. It just means messenger. It means one who has been sent either to convey a message or to achieve a certain task or both. If we wanted to talk about a being term, we would have to refer to a cherub or a seraph or the plural cherubim or seraphim. Those are the being terms. Angel simply means messenger. And this is why you have, for example, angel being used of pastors in the New Testament because they're charged with bringing the message of God to the local congregation. So here it is called the angel of the Lord. You have a lot of angels or messengers of the Lord who are referred to in the Old Testament, but occasionally you'll see one referred to as the angel, the messenger of the Lord. And when you see that, you will often see in the same context this one called the messenger of the Lord also being referred to as the Lord. You see that in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses, the angel of the Lord calls from the burning bush. But during the conversation, Moses asks, what shall I tell the children of Israel if they ask me your name? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. And he identifies himself, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he is the angel of the Lord, and he is also the Lord. That's because he is God. He is also God the Son, who is the perfect representative and spokesman for the Father. You see the exact same thing in chapter 22. You see in verse 11 and verse 15, the angel of the Lord calling to Abraham out of heaven. But later you see the angel of the Lord saying, 
By myself I have sworn. In other words, he is speaking as the Lord. By myself I have sworn. I will bless you in the ways that he specifies. So you do not have a cherub or a seraph speak in that way. And whenever you see these phenomena, you know you're talking specifically, not just generically about God, you're talking about God the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So it is Christ pre-incarnate, God the Son, who keeps appearing in the Old Testament. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was Christ who appeared to Moses on top of Mount Sinai, Hebrews 12, verses 25 and 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that it was Christ who led Israel through the wilderness after the Exodus, giving them manna from heaven and water from the rock, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. And in Genesis 15, you'll remember, that's one of the other mountain peaks in the life of Abraham. One of those times, one of the other times when God called Abraham to take a giant step forward. In Genesis 15, it is Christ pre-incarnate who makes the covenant with Abraham. How does he make the covenant with Abraham? By walking alone the path of sacrificial death down between the cloven animal parts. During that occasion, Abraham is incapacitated. He has been placed by God in some sort of a deep sleep in which he is fully cognizant of what is going on, but he can't move. So Abraham is incapacitated. Only God in the form of the, the pillar of cloud and fire, the glory cloud, the swirling angels by which God revealed his presence in the Old Testament walks down between the sacrificial animal parts. And that's extremely significant because it's at the very heart of the gospel. You see, with a standard normal covenant, you have to have two parties. Each one has to be undertaking promises to the other. Each one has to be obligated to perform. If you don't have that, you don't have a covenant. There's only one exception to that rule, and that is a last will and testament, also known as a last will and covenant. But there's a catch. A last will and testament only becomes enforceable upon the death of the testator who made it. Hebrews 9, verse 15. He, referring to Christ, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. What God, what Christ pre-incarnate was signifying in chapter 18 and chapter 15 when he made that covenant with Abraham is that this Abraham is not a normal covenant. Why? Because you can't perform and neither can we. 
We're, we have to, we're incapacitated. We're helpless in terms of what must be done in the new covenant, the covenant in which the gospel is put into effect. It is a covenant that only God can undertake. And therefore, it must be a last will and testament that is affected by death. That's why Abraham cannot move. Only God walks down between the animal pieces. And what he's saying is, this is how this covenant will be put into effect. I will walk the path of sacrificial death. And so he is calling to, this is to bring salvation both to Abraham and all who have the faith of Abraham. So who is it then who is going to take on human flesh so that he can walk the path of sacrificial death and bring about salvation? Well, it's not God the Father, even though the Father does give his Son. It is not God the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit incarnates the Son and sustains and strengthens him all the way to the cross. It is God the Son alone, who is incarnate in the person of Jesus who will hang on the cross. Even so, it is specifically God the Son, Christ pre-incarnate, who keeps appearing and speaking in the Old Testament to communicate the gospel that he himself is going to fulfill. Now, this is why the New Testament connects Genesis 15, where God made the covenant with Abraham, and Genesis 22, which is our passage today. Because both of these passages, like I said, are great mountain peaks, which powerfully point forward to Christ and his death on the cross. And they both powerfully called for Abraham to believe this gospel message. And they call us to believe as well. James chapter 2, verse 21. Abraham, our father, offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Genesis 22. Verse 23 of James 2. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. So God the Son, Christ pre-incarnate, is the one speaking to Abraham. He is the one calling Abraham to sacrifice his miraculously born son of promise, who is a picture of whom? Of Jesus, of Christ. And so we see here that God the Son, Christ pre-incarnate, when he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, He's not playing games with Abraham. He's not messing with Abraham. He is revealing to Abraham what he himself is going to do to bring about the new covenant and the gospel. In fact, Mount Moriah, which you see referenced in verse 2, which is where they must go, that's the temple mount in Jerusalem where Solomon will many years later build the temple. You can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. So Christ sends Abraham to the very place 
where he will offer himself up. You see what Christ is doing here is he is driving the gospel home to Abraham by having him live it out as close as possible in three different ways. First, Christ requires Abraham to live out the love of God the Father in giving his only begotten son on the cross. Christ requires Abraham to live out the love of God the Father in giving his only begotten son on the cross. Here, as we've noted, Abraham must give his only begotten son on the altar, his only miraculously born son of promise, who is a living picture of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins to be the propitiating or atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, even though Scripture often speaks of the greatness of the Father's love in giving His only begotten Son for us, I think we often fail to fully appreciate it. After all, it was the Son, not the Father, who died on the cross. But what I think we're missing in that context is the perspective of a parent. For those of you who are parents, let me ask you this question. What would cost you more? Giving your own life or giving the life of one of your children? You know the answer to that question. That's why every parent here would gladly give their life in the place of any one of their children. If we asked Abraham what cost him more, giving his own life or giving Isaac's life, what would he say without hesitation? Giving Isaac's life costs him more than giving his own life. In the same sense, I think we can say that it costs the father more to give his son. And that love of God the Father in giving his only begotten son on the cross is what Abraham had to live out in Genesis chapter 22. Second, Christ requires Abraham to live out the faith of Christ himself as God's only begotten son. Christ requires Abraham to live out the faith of Christ himself as God's only begotten son. And this is another point that we tend to miss because, of course, Jesus is the Savior and he is the perfect man. So he does not need faith in a Savior. And that leads us to think that Jesus didn't need faith. But as Hebrews 12 tells us, while Jesus did not need faith in a Savior, 
he nevertheless very much needed faith in his father. He needed faith in his father's promise to raise him from the dead and to seat him at his right hand. The promise that if Jesus went to the cross bearing the sins of his people, that if he entered the grave, that God the Father would raise him from the dead, not by bringing him back out the way that he went in, like Lazarus, that's resuscitation. No, bursting out the other side in new glorified human life that nobody had ever seen before. That promise, this is why it says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus was the author and finisher, that is the perfecter of our faith. Only perfect faith in God the Father and his promises could qualify Jesus as the perfect man and as the final Adam on our behalf. Only perfect faith in the Father could carry Jesus through the Garden of Gethsemane, onto the cross, into the grave, out the other side in resurrection, and into heaven at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 12.1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, where was this joy set before him? In the promises of the Father. What was this joy that was set before him? That he would be raised from the dead and glorified human life. That he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. And that he would receive the ends of the earth as his inheritance. That's joy. That joy was set before Jesus in the promises of the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 5 verse 7 describes the faith of Christ in his father as he was going to the cross. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, that is the father, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So only implicit faith in the Father and his promises could carry Jesus onto the cross, into the grave, out in resurrection, and to the right hand of the Father. In the same way, only implicit faith in Christ and his promises could carry Abraham to this mountain to offer up Isaac his miraculously born son of promise. Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. All the promises were bound up in Isaac. Concluding, this is Abraham's faith, concluding, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which also he received him in a figurative sense. 
What happens when they get to the mountain is a picture of the death of Christ and the resurrection. So in Genesis 22, we see God obeying Christ implicitly and immediately. He receives this command. He is up early the next morning about it. He knows the God of the gospel. That's why. That's the only reason. He knows the God of the gospel. He knows that God never fails. He knows that God always keeps his promises. And he knows that every one of God's promises to him are bound up with his son Isaac, who is the living picture of the promised one to come. And so Abraham concludes, if I offer up my son Isaac, God will raise him up from the dead because God always keeps his promises. That's exactly what is going on here in chapter 22. Third and finally, Christ requires Abraham to live out the worship of Christ on the cross. Christ requires Abraham to live out the worship of Christ on the cross. We've already talked about the faith and obedience of Christ on the cross. The Bible tells us that faith and obedience was offered by Christ up to the Father as his supreme act of worship. Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That's quintessential Old Testament worship language. He's telling us that his sacrificial death his obedience to the Father, his laying down his life for us was all worship to God the Father. And it was this supreme act of worship, according to the New Testament, that saves us. You see, the way it's presented in the New Testament is that the righteous life of Christ, the perfect life of Christ from his birth all the way up through the Garden of Gethsemane All of that uh, perfect obedience and faith and worship to God the Father, all of that simply qualified him to render the one supreme act of obedience, of sacrifice, and of worship by which we are saved. Romans 5 verse 18. As through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men. He's going back to Adam. Now we know that Adam, when he falls, he's going to sin a lot of different times in his life. But there was only one transgression that condemned us, the entire human race. There was only one transgression that rendered all of us sinners fallen by nature. And that was the one transgression of Adam committed in the Garden of Eden when he ate the forbidden truth. As through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. All the other perfect righteousness of Christ was to qualify him for that one act, that one supreme act of obedience, sacrifice, and worship to the Father offered by Jesus on the cross. 
So we see then in conclusion that chapter 22 of Jesus, just like chapter 15 before it, it's pure gospel. It is pure gospel from start to finish. And we see the difficulty of the test that Christ brought to Abraham. But we also see, when we realize who's bringing this test, this is the one who is going to actually accomplish everything that Abraham is signifying. We see that this difficult test was brought to Abraham in love. And we see the reason why every good teacher gives challenging tests to their students. Why does a great teacher give thorough and challenging tests to their students? It's not so the students will fail. It's so the students can shine. It's so they can succeed. It's so that they can receive glory and honor. And we see here in chapter 22, Abraham, we've seen times, now Abraham's faith never altogether failed him, but we've seen time when Abraham has fallen short. We've seen times when fear has gotten the better of Abraham. And while the, the gold of faith was there, there was impurities in the gold. We've seen several instances of that. But here in chapter 22, Abraham's faith shines like 24 karat gold. It is faith that is from the heart. It is faith that is founded on the gospel. It is faith that resulted in instant and implicit obedience. It is faith that resulted in worship from the whole heart, the whole person, and all that Abraham had, all under the most difficult of circumstances. And I want to close here by reading Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3 where he just takes this all in a package and he puts a bow on it. And this is what he says starting in verse 7. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham before him. What did God preach to Abraham in the Old Testament? The gospel, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What is God talking about when he says, in you all the nations will be blessed? He's talking about the gospel who, that will come through the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. When you look at our passage in chapter 22, you find something that often English translations do. And that is when God is speaking there at the end and reiterating the covenant promises to Abraham. And he says, by myself, I have sworn blessing. I will bless you. And I will multiplying, I will multiply your descendants. Well, descendants is not what the Hebrew said. What the Hebrew says is seed singular. Seed singular. 
And when it says that uh, your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies, what it literally says in the Hebrew is your seed, singular, will possess the gates of his enemies. It's talking about Jesus and all of those who are in Jesus. Now to Abraham and his seed with the promises made, he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.